BBCC episode 43, my realization of the day. I don't think any decade of horror encapsulates its time period like the naughty aughts do. Um, whatever movie you're watching always seems to be like such a direct reflection of that year. The early 2000s were definitely a low point for fashion. Like, what was our fucking obsession with denim? But I will say, however, that it was the pinnacle of music. So all the soundtracks of the aughts movies always kick ass like they do in these two movies that we're talking about today. We'll get into more of that. Let's go ahead and start the show. Yes, I was going to start this episode singing New Perspective by Pack at the Disco, but my voice sounds like shit today. But hello, hello. It is your boy, Devon Taylor, a.k.a. underscore Daddy Disco, on Twitter and Instagram. And this is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. It is a podcast where we talk about our favorite horror movies. We have a new theme every month, and then we break it down into subgenres because there's just so much variety within the genre. We are in week three of Lovesick Month here and this has been one of my favorite months to dive into there's just so many layers the past two weeks the past two episodes like I didn't expect them to be like as deep and like go like into the places we were going so like it's been fantastic to talk these movies these two that we're talking today are a little bit on the lighter side but there are still a lot of really interesting uh, things to talk about as far as sexuality love and relationships. So, of course, I have a very special guest today. He is a writer for Morbid Beauty and Something Ghoulish. He's also a fellow We Are Horror alum. Welcome, Chandler Bullock. How you doing, my man? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm very excited um, for these two movies that we watched today. We are going to be talking May and Jennifer's Body, and May was a first-time watch for me. Jennifer's Body was a first-time watch for Chandler. So, like, we're going to have some uh, really fresh perspectives for you guys. Um, They are two movies that also happen to just line up perfectly. Um, It doesn't always work out that way, you know? Like, sometimes whenever I pair a movie with a a guest, I'll be, like, kind of reaching to, like, kind of connect them. And I don't always try to, like, have them, like, be connecting or parallel. But it worked out, like, so well for this episode. Yeah, it was crazy uh, when you first told me, you know, I, I pitched May and you said, well, OK, I want to do Jennifer's body. I thought, OK, I hadn't seen it. I only knew a little bit about the discourse on it. Mm-hmm. So I had my expectations for the film like anybody else would. And I had expected far more of a run of the mill kind of teen comedy that just was a bit overlooked. So then I thought, oh, May with this one. I don't know. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, the parallels are they're they're deep in there. They yeah. are there. <laughs> yeah, they they're they are definitely in there. And that's kind of how it was for me with May. Like it was a movie that I had heard about um just because like it's more of a more of a cult movie. Like it didn't get like great reviews, didn't make a whole bunch of money at the box office, and yeah. people didn't seem to appreciate it as much at the time, and then it, you know, develops this cult following. And Jennifer's body had a very similar journey as well. You know, it like you said, like 
you you thought it was going to be this you know teen just like kind of standard creature feature or something like that and there's a lot more going on there and it's you know that it's so interesting that how you know perception of movies are shaped by their marketing but then also just like by like the gut reactions at the beginning you know that people have to those movies and then eventually later you know that's when they get their reappraisal you know I always say and there's always a movie like every year you notice that like every year it's like oh this is the movie that like now it's like hey this was a lot better than we thought and like 2020 I think would be Jennifer Jennifer's body's year it was kind of interesting yeah I, that's why it was on my radar and like it was amazing you, you brought it up around the time that that movie was on my mind a lot anyway just because of how much of the second coming it came or came about in 2020 for it. Um, so, you know, Jennifer's body rises again, I suppose. Yeah, I, I really do love that. It was like in 2020, I mean, so many people were dropping video essays. They were doing commentaries on it, like all these like people and then all the articles that were coming out about it. And it's just like always, always interesting. So I, I'm intrigued to see in 2021 what movie is going to get its like time in the spotlight i'm not sure yeah i'm curious about that as well i mean there's a whole that whole if it's a little later say the early like 2010s i can imagine i have a lot of blind spots for that just because of mm -hmm. just i mean we were bombarded with so much media from so many different genres that i think that there are gems within our niche kind of genre film market that people are going to be like how did this not just blow up and and take everything over and uh that's how i felt when i saw jennifer's body at least i was kind of surprised with how knowing how people were in, in 2009 like that was it like the yeah. place was hit hard you know yeah and nobody cared <laughs> nobody yeah it was like it was like we'll get we'll get more into it because there's a uh when as far as like bringing in like some of the themes that it was exploring and like why it was still surprising that nobody talked about it as much at the time but you know also with the internet days you know that definitely is kind of changed a lot of things and you know that's one of the great things about the internet you know bringing back appreciation for some of these movies that you know missed out on their initial 15 minutes of fame yeah and i also think you know a lot of those uh, stupid kids back then are now smarter adults with a lot of life experience. And exactly. Going, okay, what was I feeling at the time? And what do I see now? And why does this mean something to me? Even though I'm sure there are people who are discovering, like we might discover that you know, a movie like Saw or something, it actually hit some, you know, as big as it was, maybe struck a chord in a different way with a whole swathe of people that are just now taking the opportunity to talk about them in certain ways. And I, that's what I'm enjoying about discourse on the internet, at least uh, right now is all these new voices coming up. Mm -hmm. We're kind of talking more about little, what we would consider like quirky observations, things that are our private thoughts that ah, yeah. nobody agrees with this and you put it out there mm -hmm. and then it blows your mind. How many people are going like you have spoken about my life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is so true. Um, you know, with people, uh, you know, the new voices that are kind of putting their thoughts out in the community, but also like it's a, it's kind of a like different way now, like for like a little bit, like a few years ago, people were real into doing these like, you know, super deep, like technical analyses on films and like trying to break them down that way. Yeah. And I like that we're kind of right now, so many people are writing more personal, like vulnerable, you know, work and, you know, analyzing films like through 
their emotions and their past experiences versus just, you know, what you're plainly seeing on the screen. I think that is like super cool in the discourse right now. Yeah, I'm happy to see it. Really am. It's something I've been wanting to see for years and uh, I'm looking forward to contributing and making that stronger as uh, the years go by. Yeah, man, you are a killer writer that has been popping up all over any (laughs) horror website that um, exists at the moment, you know, and I I love getting all the different voices from everybody. And of course, I like asking everybody, you know, what kind of got you to this point that, um, you know, you wanted to start writing a little bit more about horror. Like, when did you when did it, you know, touch you initially? Not not in that way, but in that way. (laughs) (laughs) Touch my heart. Yeah. Um, You know. So I've always been into horror. I think a lot of people mentioned that too, you know, different ages. Uh, uh, my first exposure was around the age of three because my father decided to watch Stephen King's It as it was airing. And mm-hmm. just like, I'm not putting the boy to bed. I'm just going to watch the movie. <laughs> and my mom came home for work and she's like, what have you done? But fortunately, I was a big Bozo the Clown fan. So apparently I just laughed for the whole film thinking that Bozo was being silly. Uh, so it wasn't was it wasn't like that deep-seated fear that people have of clowns initially it not was at a, all oh well good yeah i liked clowns i was that but you know i like wearing face paint and stuff too like i was a halloween kid um but there was a time that i didn't really think about doing any of the writing stuff uh the, what really got me into that i'd say was you know my studies i studied uh cultural theory i did american studies for my ba i'm also working on rounding off a research master's in regards to literature, culture, and media. And all of that mixed in with what I mentioned before, you know, the feeling of, I don't know, I've always felt these movies in this way, but people only talk about the movies in that way. Mm-hmm. And as I've kind of gotten older, I've just realized that more often than not, if I've opened up with somebody, they surprise me with what they actually connect with. Yeah. So you never know what somebody actually agrees with or has felt as well. And I just kind of like shot in the dark, decided what if I just try it out in the sphere outside of study, talk about it a little bit in a way that means something to me and see what sticks. So I just, you know, started throwing some pitches out there to see what I could do. And I was welcomed pretty heavily and I've just been enjoying it ever since. So that was the drive really was just to kind of talk about things that meant something to me and, I'm happy to hear that others seem to have shared the same kind of processes. Yeah, I really liked uh, what you said about, you know, when there's a movie that people only talk about in like a certain way and then trying to yeah. approach that movie of being like, okay, how can I talk about it in a different way? Like, because that's, a, you know, that you'll, everyone has like, you know, there's a lot of like favorites, you know, that people share. And then also when they share those favorites, you know, a lot, like you said, like the discourse will always tend to be like about that one thing, you know, like um, I saw like recently there was a video on Inception and it was talking about the emotional performances in it versus, you know, obviously just talking about, you know, everybody talks about the world building. People always talk Mm -hmm. about in Inception, you know, the end of the movie, like what what their opinion is on it. And all the technical stuff, like that's always what you see when people talk about Inception, but then just seeing something just slightly different being like, hey, there's like, yeah, all that stuff exists in the movie, but like, let me try to, you know, come at from the other angle. And like, that's what intrigues me, you know, is like, like, it's just boils down to, you know, hearing more distinct opinions, you know, about movies that you already love, you know, but more personalized opinions. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's funny. I was having conversations about this today on Twitter uh, about WandaVision. Uh, somebody kind of trying to write it off because it was just a simple superhero thing. And I've done that for years as well. Just seeing all these superhero movies as kind of just the pulp fun escapism as they are. But I mean, I think most people wept at a few of these films because <laughs> they hit particular emotional chords. And uh, for me, WandaVision has been hitting a few of those. I'm not going to get into spoilers since it's a very mm-hmm. fresh thing, but you know, they were like, oh, well, this character's only had about 20 minutes of screen time through 12 movies. And I said, like, look, and I listed off the full development of the character that has been explored in that short amount exactly. of time. Yeah. Because it's there if you look for it. <laughs> yeah. Quality over quantity, you know, yeah. like, yeah, because that <laughs> that is like so perfect. Like, it doesn't matter, like, even if it's been that little, it's like, it's, it's how they, it's how they use that time, you know, and um, that is a a very interesting detail. I'm intrigued to go forward. I'm only in episode two of WandaVision. So I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it's uh, all going to unfold. Um, but speaking of, you know, what we've been watching lately, before we get into the uh, main movies for the episode, um, why don't you shout something out that either you've watched recently that, you know, you've been just thinking about or something that, you know, kind of reflects your taste a little bit. Yeah, okay. Um, when, when it comes to like, recent watches, I've actually been more in work mode, <laughs> doing a bit of writing or my day job. And so I've been doing a lot of that kind of like brain drain, watch something simple. Yeah. But uh, then let's see. I mean, something that I can always talk about, I suppose, would be something like uh, Pan's Labyrinth would be more when I get into my tastes. Mm-hmm. What I'd probably go to for a nice comfort film. Yeah, Del Toro's it. You know, I need some discomforting fantasy worlds <laughs> yeah that's always an interesting one that it's, it's funny that like i literally was gonna say it but that was like he's gonna say it's a comfort movie because like when people <laughs> it's so interesting that people talk about that movie in that way because it's like uh it, it took me a while to watch it and i didn't watch it until like a few years ago and then i watched it and i was like okay everybody talks about like how like warm and fuzzy this makes them feel but like this is a very sad movie this is very like sad and bleak and, you know, but the way that he approaches it, like, you know, through the eyes of this child and like still capturing that, capturing that bleakness mm-hmm. through a child's eye is like so wild. But then it makes those like fantasy moments like hit harder, you know, and then that's when you get like that overwhelming like warmth from the movie. So it's always interesting whenever people mention that one as like a big comfort movie for them. I think you hit the nail on the head, exactly, the way Del Toro handles it. I think, you know, when we're kids, we, as adults, we don't give ourselves enough credit to our little kid brains and think, oh, I didn't understand this or I didn't understand that. And if you really think about it, like, man, kid life is just as dark as adult life sometimes. You just don't have the language for a lot of things. Some things have to be explained to you, but. You have to fill in the gaps. And that's where, like, those, like, fantasy elements come in. Exactly. And Del Toro is one of the most emotional directors you're going to get. So he really captured what it was like to just be this confused child who's like, I don't know, the world's, it's supposed to be fun, but I'm trying to make it fun, but nobody's really letting me make it fun. And exactly. then you find out even the fantasy world doesn't really want to be all that fun. <laughs> so Exactly. Yeah. It, then it's just like, well, <laughs> fuck, the real world's not doing it for me. The fantasy world's not doing it. Like, ah, that is, it is a really, that is a really great movie. Um, definitely need to give it a second watch because like I've still have only watched it the one time. So 
I need to, I'm going to throw that one back in the queue. And then for me, um, recently watching and then kind of tying into, um, one of the movies that we're talking about today. So I just did a piece for Nightmare on Film Street on the 2013 remake of Maniac. And and it's like, I wish I would have watched May before writing that article. Because like, just in the, in, in capturing the idea of like someone wanting to be seen, like, like that, that, that I don't even know what the word for that emotion is, but like, it is an emotion of just like this over overwhelming sense of like, you want to connect and you want to be seen and then you like, don't know how to, what to do with it, you know? So it's like with Maniac it's kind of interesting with it being in this first person POV and, you know, getting, you know, everything through his eyes. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like, he, you know, wants to feel seen because he had those like traumatic moments when he was a kid where he's like, has to pretend to be invisible while his fucking prostitute mom is like doing her thing, you know? So it's a, it's a interesting portrayal. Like when you think of it that way, when watching Maniac through this like first person POV and like, and in the sense of also like your body, you, you know, you, you feeling a certain way about your body or being like trapped inside your body and mind. So, and that kind of carries over into May a little bit as well. So, um, if you guys haven't seen the, um, remake of Maniac, definitely check it out. It's really good. It's, like a textbook way of remaking a film if you ask me like it you know for sure like capturing the essence taking what it needs to do but like not going out of its way to make homages and stuff like that and then doing something completely original like they're two very different experiences i like the original maniac it's fine but i I really like the remake though yeah i I love the remake like i have i have not seen the original since i was very very young but the remake, I saw it when it came out, and I don't think I've seen it more than once since, and it still just sits with me. It's such a unique way to do that movie, and I loved your observation about that the be, being invisible, not you know knowing if you're visible at all, and especially by putting it through his eyes, like he doesn't even see himself through most of the movie. So exactly you get that feeling, like are you even there? Do people give a shit? It's palpable. It's such a strong film. Yeah. And like, yeah, definitely. And that's just something that like isn't captured in the original. Like they don't like tap into Frank as much and like they don't get like give you any time to empathize with him. Like in the original, like you hate Frank from the get go. You know, he's the sleazeball <laughs> and you know where the movie is heading versus like in the remake. It's like they actually give you like some reason to like empathize for a minute. And then like and how you mentioned, like he doesn't see himself through the whole movie about to blow your mind here (laughs) one of my favorite realizations that i had like i had this like years ago but or thinking about how you don't actually know what you look like because you physically cannot take your eyeballs Mm -hmm. out and like turn them on yourselves what the only thing that you see of yourself is a mirror but the mirror image is a combination of what you see but it's also your brain filling in gaps for you so it's like you truly don't know what you actually look like isn't that weird 
Oh yeah, I love it. It also reminds <laughs> me of one of those that I uh, came across like about two years ago. Uh, I think this was in one of my studies. They mentioned it, and I don't. I, they're just. I think they're being pretty cruel by mentioning it to us because we're like, no, I can't focus on the study. This is insane. But it's like, how do you know that the way you see a color is exactly how the way other people see colors? Because we know that color blindness exists. Mm-hmm. But we can't understand what they see. Yeah, and. So you know that red is red because I tell you that red is red, but how much of it is conditioning and kind of like weird social gaslighting to just agree on the same thing? Yeah, no, I I like, (laughs) yes, I had a language arts teacher that like blew our minds my like freshman year of high school talking about that same thing. She was like, she was like, imagine parenting, you have a kid and you parent the kid and you tell them red is actually blue and you tell them blue is actually red. And then you just tell them that that's all they're going to know. And that's what they're going to register. It's um, uh, a movie that uh, takes that into account is if you guys haven't seen Dogtooth, one of Dogtooth. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's earlier films, that's this uh, that exact theory oh. put to a movie. It's so strange. Yes. <laughs> I love that movie so much. So, so much. I'm so happy it's finally on Blu-ray. Yeah. So happy. It's so, so good. <laughs> Check that one out. Um, that's also a good recommendation for you guys. I think it's on Shudder right now and yeah, yeah, it's on Shudder. So is Maniac, the remake and the original one, the original one, they have a Joe Bob version. So if you haven't seen the original Maniac in a minute, watch the Joe Bob version and, uh, you know, get some little extra tidbits from Tom Savini in that one. Ooh. Oh yeah. But I would say. We are sufficiently warmed up to get into the main event movies for the episode. May, released in 2002, written and directed by Lucky McKee, um, director of uh, another cult film, All Cheerleaders Die. People seem to be big fans of that one. Um, This movie was partially edited by Ryan Johnson. Uh, director of Brick and Knives Out and, you know, a bunch of other movies. He was one of three editors on this movie. That's very interesting. And uh, so May is this movie, and it's, again, it's it, it was a movie that wasn't re- received very well when it was released. It has like a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, something like that. And then it's just this movie that people grew to appreciate over time. It's about this character, May who she has struggled her entire life making friends, connecting with people. She This is cringe horror to the upteenth degree. Like, you feel just so much for this character, um, played by Angela Bettis, who played Carrie in the TV movie version of Carrie. So she had, and I think they were, like, only, like, a year apart, or they were in the same year, even, that she played similar characters with, you know... Uh, high levels of social anxiety and awkwardness and um yeah and you know these over-the-top introverts which I know some people don't like these portrayals of introverts but at the same time like there were just so many times I was like oh my gosh like I feel just so terrible because like I've been in that situation before or like you know people that are like, when you're not someone that is naturally outgoing or, like, outroverted, it's, like, you kind of forget that there are people out there that, like, truly struggle to, like, make friends and connections with people. So it's an interesting exploration of that in this movie. 
but I was like, where does the horror come in? And oh boy, does it later. Um, and I don't know why I didn't see it coming, but this was my first time watch and I absolutely loved it. This was so good. I felt like I directed it with all the close-ups on the hands and skin, like all the things in this movie. So Chandler, what made you want to talk about this movie on the podcast? Uh I want to preface it with just how odd of a choice it was considering you put the call out for, uh, Hey, what, what's a nice kind of like sexy erotic horror film that we can mm-hmm. talk about in February. And I was like, can we talk about may? And then I thought about it, like what a strange place for my brain to go. But I think, I hope you understand where I'm coming from with it. At least in, it's like, it's eroticized to the nth degree, this movie, it's all tactile. And it's 100%. Yeah. Like it's not sexy. But it is sexual. No. Yes. <laughs> like it is. Yes. That is such a funny way to put it. it is it is definitely it's a sensual movie, but it's not trying to be. But it is. Um, yeah. It's just the way like, yeah, between the way it was shot and, you know, the line deliveries by certain characters, especially Anna Ferris's character, Polly. Like, oh, I mean, but but also like, you know, the there's yeah the tactile like sensual aesthetic to the presentation but then like also like because because we're exploring relationships and when i say relationships like it there's you know it it isn't always just like you know obviously like the what you think of boyfriend girlfriend you know love relationship like there's you know and we'll get more into this when we talk about jennifer's body like in exploring like kind of you know, the, the spectrum of love, but like when there's friendships, the love that you like kind of initially have, but then this one Mm -hmm. in May, it's again, it's like, it's that, it's that just primal desire to like, want to connect with someone, the simple things I tweeted the other night, I had like gotten off with a long day of work and I was like, man, like what I wouldn't give for just like someone simply massaging the back of my neck right now. You know, just something so simple right. like that. And I hadn't watched this movie yet. And it's like, that's, oh. that's, those are the things that may craze those simple things, like just someone placing their hand on her face, you know, and caressing right. her and like making her feel, you know, safe. Like those, those little things. I, I don't know what to describe that emotion as, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess craving. Oh, actually, uh, or yearning different- even. Yeah, yearning. Uh, it's also the concept of like being skin hungry that you just want to have some sort of physical connection with somebody, even if it's just linking pinkies. You know? Yeah, that you just feel so alone, and you just need to know that other people are there and they're going to share space with you. Basically. Exactly. Yeah, and it's it's such a it's such an interesting thing. Like especially like because it's like it's like it's like a chemical thing, you know, like it may be mm-hmm. associated with like oxytocin. That's like the, the chemical that you feel like in terms of like cuddling and uh, like sexualness right. and arousal and stuff like that. Uh, I did some research whenever we talked about spring. <laughs> I didn't I didn't bring the sciencey <laughs> stuff up enough in spring, but um, that is um, the, the chemical that they were talking about. But yeah, that that skin hungry feeling. And just yeah. the the way that they capture that through uh, May's character and the presentation of the film as well is just like because like that's stuff I'm obsessed with. Like I I tell people like 
Um, I don't know how much you're into like, you know, astrology and like tarot stuff and a bit, actually. things of that nature. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting more into it. And, um, you know, as I like kind of explored my astrology, uh, my astrology chart and stuff more and people, when I tell them I'm Gemini and they're like, they always ask if I was psychic and I was like, I don't, I don't know, but not, I'm not psychic, but I do this thing though, where when I meet people, I like to. Uh, I pay close attention to their hands. I feel like you can learn so much about someone like in a in a first initial like exchange with somebody just off of their hands. Like they, they say a lot about you, but it's something that people don't realize say a lot about you because like something you don't think right. about. Your hands are just your hands. They're tools, you know, to a lot of people. But then you can notice differences in that, you know, between people's hands. So it's like that's something I'm like weirdly obsessed with. And I like examine people's hands when I do their like tarot readings. Right. But that's cool. I, I actually, it's so funny you bring it up because I'm, uh, I have quite a few different hats that I wear in my daily life for, you know, the bill paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of which is when the, the pandemic isn't in my way, I tend to teach public speaking. And so, you know, hands are a huge part yeah. of how we communicate and how we keep our rhythm and how we, you know, you, when people do the like the uh, uh 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 stuff, you know, you're just filling up the fact that you're having a silence and a thought. Mm-hmm. But sometimes your hands can do this. This is you know, you see it with rappers, you can see it with yep. public speakers that you will stop moving so that you can create the silence. Yep, and not yep. feel awkward about it because if you're fidgeting, you're like, well, I'm gonna keep moving around with my hands. Yes. <laughs> so I love that you brought that up because I agree that the way people fidget with their hands or the control that they have over them, that really shows their mental state at that moment. And then if you're having a, you know, some communication with them, like a tarot reading, I mean, you're reading into maybe how they're responding to the input that you're giving them mm-hmm. or just being in the room with you. How does that affect them? Mm-hmm. So how are the hands from when they came in versus for when you started doing the reading? That's it's fascinating yeah. to me too. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Like I, people call out my hands whenever I talk all the time. I'm a big hand talker, but I did get complimented in college. Um, I did a public speaking showcase and I made it to like the semifinals. And one of the notes was nice. they, they uh, did note that they liked the use of my hands, that I was doing it in an effective manner versus the, the other ways but yeah hands are hands are so cool and they are sexy and adam <laughs> does have some beautiful ass hands yes, in a he weird, does. In, in a in a very specific way uh the the main character so before we go into like more details about the movie guys just a reminder we always talk spoilers on this podcast so i highly recommend that you pause the episode and go watch it it's streaming for free on tubi currently um so definitely go watch it and then come back and then listen to the rest of the episode and watch Jennifer's body while you're doing that too so what the the yeah adam and may let's we'll we'll start there is such a strangest part of the film (laughs) yeah so so we have may's character we we see at the beginning she has a lazy eye and um her mother doesn't exactly teach her the the proper ways to deal with that you know like rather than like you know telling her that nothing's wrong with her like embracing her like things like that she does the opposite of being like hey you know you can do things to cover that up or change it like you you can't let people know like everything you know that you can't be completely 100 percent honest with them but like here do this instead if you want to make friends and i was just like 
damn. And I love that we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on her childhood either. They don't yeah. show like a whole bunch of flashbacks. They show you that, and that is like just enough to just get the instant idea like that. And then when she gives um, May the Susie doll... And, like, just her even judging how she's, like, unwrapping it, you know, and then telling her she has to keep it in the case. Like, just oh, those yeah. two scenes right there is, like, boom, that's all I need to know how May grew up, you know. And I've found that, like, very impressive that, like, they didn't want to linger around with that. I think it's one of the reasons why, you, how you were talking about your response to the movie, how sometimes you could just feel that that crave, that yearning that she had. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because what you know, what Lucky McKee's done is he's really tapped into just enough information that that one kind of like microaggression that if you know, you know, exactly. and then you fill in the blanks. You're going like every single time anybody has ever said, cover this up about yourself so that people will leave you alone. You start to go like, no, that's the worst thing you could do. And you can imagine that this mother's doing this all the time. So yeah. You know what it feels like. And the doll, I think just like, adds another thing like she she's never abused from what we can see from her childhood it's just at least not the you know the more uh excessive yeah. depictions that you could have of abuses but it's a very casual kind of loving mother who's like hey i don't want you to be seen as strange but and then at the same time is communicating to her daughter that she's not quote-unquote normal basically yeah it's a it's an interesting thing because like yeah they she doesn't like it's like the you can have trauma you know, without the the abuse angle. And I like yeah. that that is something that is explored. Because, yeah, like you said, like, when you really think about it, the mom is like, hey, I'm telling you more about the realities of the world. Like, this is how people react to things. And, like, that's what's going to happen. She just ultimately doesn't want her feelings hurt, you know, in a way. It, so it's like, on one hand, it's like, I get where she's going with it. But, of course, it's just like, that's one of the many nuances you have to juggle when you're a parent you know so again the the way that they uh depicted this was just like the, we we got just enough of it and that's all we needed and then once we uh get to adult may and then just letting angela bettis just like shape this entire character and film like i mean she's like really good at what she is oh, doing so for good. this film yeah specifically yes you know i won't for say this a small film too yeah, like yeah. I, I won't like, say this is it. like Meryl Streep acting going on, but for this specific film, she's like so absolutely perfect for it. Yeah, it's like the best casting I think they could have gotten for the role. And then, as you said, like she was already kind of in that. It was a bit of tight casting for her at the time, but I think yeah. in this case, it was just the stars aligned, <laughs> basically. Yeah, for this casting, she yeah. is May. Yeah, because she was. Yeah, like you said, it was like she's already in that mindset for like playing Carrie. And then plays this character. So it's like, yeah, typecasting a little bit. But then at the same time, like, it's just like when you have that perfect actor, like, for what you're doing. As, and that, and that's, like, such a – I've noticed, um, you know, filmmakers that do smaller films on smaller budgets, the thing that they prioritize is, like, they say, if you're going to have a, a great anything – make sure you cast the right person. Like, because like, if you're going to have anything like have that and that'll be, you know, enough to kind of cover up some of the other flaws that you like have in some of these smaller films. Yeah. Why limit yourself uh, in the spaces that there is no limitation, you know, actors are hungry. 
And I'm sure plenty are going to say, what a psychological horror movie, sign me up. And you're like, cool. Who's going to get the, the golden ticket for this one? You know? Yeah. So it's like you, 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 you get that and it's like, okay, like that's one less thing you have to worry about throughout the film. And then, you know, you can kind of, you know, take your liberties elsewhere. Cause I think it's also funny. Like you, you can also tell, that he wanted to make this movie like maybe a little artsier but just like didn't have the ability to do it you know and some of like you see more of it like towards the end I'm glad that they like save it you know for that last for the third act is where you get like more of the the flair and stuff of the style and it's like and once it started getting into that I was like I wish there was like even more of this in the in the first half so it's like you can tell he wanted to do that, and I say that because this is a director that made a movie on a small budget and then remade his exact movie again yeah. later just with more money. <laughs> so it's like I, I respect him. I, I, I respect <laughs> it, you know that he has this craving to like want to do something more with this film, but like it just don't have enough for the movie for it. But like, but at the same time, that restraint, you know, might have been a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a, a great thing for the impact of the film at the end, too, because I I think he did enough little breadcrumbs to let you know, like, if you're paying attention, it's going to get wild. If you're not paying attention, it just is like when you I don't know if you've ever done like the Pirates of the Caribbean kind of ride, but it's mm -hmm. very gentle and kind of exciting the whole way through. You have this little dip and they're like, ha ha, you thought we were going to tank you down. And they just drag you down for like, you know, 50 meters or something. And you're like, oh shit, I didn't see this coming. And I think that's what May does really, really well because like we didn't have the budget to wow you through the whole film with uh, extravagant stuff. It's also not a slasher movie. So I didn't really want to do that. I also see a lot of filmmakers just a few years after who did do that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, have you seen Starry Eyes, for an instance? I think yes. that's a good example. This is a very great example. Love Starry Eyes, one of my favorite movies. Uh, podcast viewers can't see it, but but uh, uh, Chandler can see my Starry yeah, Eyes tattoo on my wrist. Hell um, yeah. But yeah, that is such a great example. I was so pumped for Colson Widmeyer to do Pet Cemetery, and then I was like, damn, they did exactly... <laughs> what you're not supposed to do like they gave them yeah. money and then they went ah you know <laughs> <laughs> oh man that that's so spot on but yeah, yeah. sometimes it, it works in your favor and then so speaking of like kind of like the experience of like where the movie goes to and uh it's it, again it's like i didn't expect it to go like where it goes into but then, yeah, like it's it's all there. Like they they kind of do these like, like they they put little touches of like, the oh, there's kind of some whispers. Like, is she hearing the doll talking? Is the doll talking? Yeah. You know. And then the exactly. glass breaking like continuously, and it's like, wait, does May have powers? Maybe like, is she cracking <laughs> the glass with her superpowers? I was like, where is this actually gay go? And then it turns into. No, May is a uh, a seamstress. She makes her own clothing, and she's obsessed with dolls. She's going to make a Frankenstein human at the end of the movie. <laughs> and I was like, that is, I was like, of course that makes complete sense. But, like, I just did not expect, like, that's where the movie was going. So, like, yeah. let's get into uh, the subject. Uh, so, let's get into the genre grinder. 
this is a segment on the podcast where we uh, dig deeper into the subgenres of the films that we're talking about. So obviously we're talking love and romance and relationships and sexuality in this one. But then I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper in there. So it's like the first 50 minutes of this movie are just like kind of like an awkward, like cringe comedy, like something, you know? And then once it starts creeping in, like you realize like a lot of the horror is like psychological, you know, like when you just like kind of think of May's, you know, the, her lonely outlook and like how like kind of scary that kind of is, you know, and the fact that she's just went her entire life of like not having friends, not having anyone just like, that that element was like okay that's where the horror is coming in but then i was like oh no we are getting literal horror so that turns into <laughs> a body horror movie um yeah she's not a slasher but i mean it kind of goes into a little slasher territory i would say it does uh, yeah uh, it, uh, i wouldn't say so much in like the visual elements i don't think they f- quite go into the yes. you know structuring of it but she definitely gets into the stalker kind of mode of just yeah. predatory by the end of the film. Yeah, there's definitely that too. Some like um some uh this is the awkward cringe version of um of uh fear with Mark Wahlberg. Oh, I don't know that one. <laughs> oh, it's a good one. You should watch it. All right. Fear. All right. You should watch it. It's from like 97. Oh, Marky Mark needs to go dark again. <gasps> Marky Mark era. Yeah. Okay. He needs to go dark again. Um, yeah, he does. But, um, but yeah, it goes kind of into this stalker territory. And like it, I would say it would be like in the slasher ballpark if they mm-hmm. were actually focusing on the kills. But that's the thing here. She's killing these yep. people and like taking the body parts. But that's not like what they care about. They're they're not trying to show you. I mean, they we do get some great kills. I won't say we don't get some like visually <laughs> uh, pleasing kills in it. But like that's not what they're that's not what they're doing. They're like, okay, that's not the the scary part here. The the scary part is like the the degree to which she is cracked now and like convincing yeah. herself of like what she wants. And like they keep talking about throughout the film. Um, you know, one of the things. One of the things she says later that pretty much like sums up the whole film is like, uh, where do I have it in my notes? Where is it? She's uh, talking to the, um, she's talking to the punk guy on the on the bench. You know, this oh, is yeah. before she like kills her like first victim, and um, and she goes, so many pretty parts, but no pretty holes. And yes. he goes, and he goes, damn, yeah. He goes, that's so true. And I was like. <laughs> damn that's good and then like and that's them and then that's lucky mckee saying oh no like we're about to she's about to start cutting people up for body parts and like sewing them together so it's like they they do put all the things in there you know but uh, such a satisfying third act though oh yeah i think so that moment you're talking about on the park bench for me one thing that made the movie just completely unsettling through and through, like um, one of the reasons I chose it was because I was one of those kind of angsty, insecure teenagers who I had the invisibility thing that we were talking about with Maniac mm-hmm. and, and how May was just kind of wanting people to be around her. And then I wasn't like I was raised in a very loving environment, but I wasn't necessarily raised to do much more than either confront people or indeed just kind of hide the things that I found Mm-hmm. so 
if I was to be very expressive about things, people, I mean, I grew up in the South, so people were just like, well, I mean, <laughs> what did you expect to get? You're acting kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's such a like weird thing to like accept and like, just like kind of, you know, the, the training of your brain, you know, that, you know, yeah. the way that these environments and the people, you know, kind of shape that. And like you said, like, even if you do are like growing up in a loving environment, you can still have these things affect you. And there's like mm-hmm. a there's a recurring element in the film of like, you know, people revealing like little things about themselves. Like, you know, um, yeah. like when you have so it's like there's mainly May and Adam and then there's May and Polly going on. You know, those are the two main relationships that are being explored here. Um, forgot to tell you guys, these two movies are both for the bisexuals um, this episode. Yes. Um, the most bisexual episode we've had so far. Um, and I love that they, yes, thank you. And I love that they explored both of them, you know, in such interesting ways. So, so May with Adam, you know, she sees him, he's working on his cars and she's just like, instantly it's just like, in, and I know that feeling of like when you just see someone and you're like so enamored and then you're just like kind of thinking about things and you're already forming a picture of him before they even like talk to him, you know, right. like she's telling her um eye doctor about this date that she's going on and how he's perfect she has literally not spoken a word to him the date (laughs) she's talking to is she goes to a coffee shop that he's at and just hopes that he like looks over at her so they can like talk and like that whole sequence is so fucking funny it's so (laughs) hilarious like there is such great comedy in this movie as well like it's very funny (laughs) Uh, Lucky McKee's movies are always really darkly funny. Uh, there's another one that came out a few years after this called The Woman, which is one of just the most dark, depressed. It's it's kind of like martyrs level violence at times, and just the level of you know social commentary in that film is very very strong, and it is hilarious. The way that these characters are just so waspy and privileged and. Uh, and the same thing with May, you know, if you know what it's like to just kind of fantasize and maybe speak a little bit too uh, openly about your, uh, your your little personal feelings that day. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Embarrassing yourself constantly. Or if you're just, if you're like Polly and you're like, I, this is me, yo, and I'm going to talk like this now, you know, like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, it's Love like, it. It, it's like with, with May and Adam, there's like the, like, the interesting way of like, you know, she has her like little weird quirks that are like obvious. And then, and then there's this like side of Adam and he's like, you know, he's the rugged mechanic guy and he just sits and smokes cigarettes and reads stoically. But then it's like, Oh, he likes to make these like little weird short films. And it's like the, the idea of him, like even meeting someone that's like, you know, weird, but he's given her a chance, you know? And then being like, oh, like, here, let me be a little vulnerable. And he's like, even to her, he's like watching her reaction being like, oh, my God, is she going to think I'm weird? And it's like, who do you think you're talking to right now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's like there's I like that level. And and I like and, and the continuing thing, too, of like how you said, like her parents were never like really abusive or anything like Adam is never like a terrible guy to her in the movie. Like for the most part, he is a pretty straight up guy. And I I just have repeatedly in my notes, I'm like, 
Adam, please be a good guy. Please be a good guy. I was like, I was just, <laughs> I, I was like scared they were going to have like a rapey scene or something, or he was yeah. going to be creepy, or he was going to like set her up one of his friends and prank her and embarrass her. Like, I was worried all those cliches would come up, and they didn't. And like all the interactions, even when he like is like trying to like, you know, ghoster but he's still doing it in like a decent way he's not like overly like a dick or anything except like he talks about her behind her back to your friends but it's like everybody does that you know yeah it's like it's at home i mean that should be a safe space to just kind of like okay i just need to really get this out you know exactly he would never say that to her face or treat her that way i think if he had seen her just after that he would have been like okay and then said it to her in a more kind way to let her know that she upset him. That's how Adam at least struck me through most of the film. Yeah, like, he has, like, a very consistentness of, like, yeah, like, being like, hey, like, I'm going to be straightforward with you, like, you know, doing all these things. And then, again, I like that they, like, subverted the expectations of, like, a rapey scene or something like that. It's like, we have this, like, really, like, tender, like, makeout session that's, like, you know, showing all the things that they don't show in normal scenes of like my favorite things while I'm making out is like when you're like feeling someone's leg, you know, or like the, yeah. you know, the, the caressing and like just all that stuff. Like that's what they're focusing on. And he's like not advancing like beyond his means. He's like being like he can tell she's like inexperienced. I thought he was going to take advantage. He like totally doesn't. And then it turns into she takes it too far, you know, trying to bite his <laughs> fucking lip off. Yeah. <laughs> It's and so like such a such an interesting scene that again like yeah like subverts your expectations but then is still you know revealing these like you know deep things within the with and it and it and it's all just because of her like misunderstanding of like she was like oh like you showed me that short film of the couple like making out and then eating each other like I thought that's like what you're into you know and she just like it's just like people. There are people in the world that just like, you know, don't receive information the same, you know, and it's not their fault, you know, and it's like, so it's, it's interesting exploring that aspect through such a like crazy scene though, too. Oh yeah. The the scene is awkward no matter what. I think that Adam's response is just about anybody's response. Who's in like excruciating pain at that moment when you were just trying to chill and have a little, you know, Zen makeout session. Uh, Exactly. What I I do think that, you know, it's really easy to get caught up and think because this is a negative situation that we have a, a character that is an extreme, somebody who does, you know, hurt people and commit harm that may, that it's easy to see the film and say, so maybe it's saying something negative about neurodivergencies or about understanding, but I do think it's the other way around. It's more that it's showing you that look at all the little things that we do and say to people that we find normal. It comes back time and time again with Adam. Like, well, mm-hmm. this is how we talk. Well, I didn't mean anything by it. Polly's like, hey, don't be so uptight about everything. But you don't know what people understand or what background they come from mm-hmm. or if they do have a neurodivergency. So why don't we ask more questions of, did you get that? How does this make you feel? Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to be, the, you know, the, the cliche of being over like over touchy-feely about it uh, and, and, you know, treat them like a porcelain doll. But it's more like, you good? Is that okay? Because if mm-hmm. it's not, you should say so. And more clear communication helps people in general. And so what you see with a character like May, and I think that this is where the horror comes in from the beginning, is that her misunderstandings are, you know, she does have a predisposition 
towards violence and obsession. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if she's responding in a very uh, expected or typical manner to input, you know? (laughs) So that's where she's a little scary from the beginning anyway, because you could say something really normal to her and try to make her understand. And she's still going to understand a version of it. That's probably a little twisted or dark, but that's, you know, she's, that's a movie character then. Exactly. And it's like, that's the way that they're able to explore this. And then like, kind of like at the end of the day, you're still, you, you're, you're empathizing with her, but at the end of the day, you're like, this is all completely wrong, you know, like, yeah. because it's, you know, that's just the way that it comes across. Cause like you said, like it was already kind of there, you know, that, you know, they established that like she has these tendencies you know, and the the way that they work up to that is also great. Like, you know, just like the her pricking herself with the scalpel, which, of course, yeah. becomes her like murder weapon of choice because she works at a vet clinic. Also just great. Yep. Like that just like worked on so many levels and like, you know, just like in the increase, like the way that she like talks about her job to Adam. And then, you know, so it's, there's just like a they're just adding more guts into the bucket. And then, of course, it's going to overflow by the end so then like you said we got we so we have may and adam but then we got may and polly so polly uh played brilliantly by anna ferris um love her she's at her peak her comedy peak right here she's also hot as hell right here i love (laughs) anna ferris so much i've always been such a big fan and i'm a big fan too and she's just so perfect so she's the the vet uh clinic assistant uh, does like all the secretary stuff and she's just like again like she's a person that tries very hard to like connect like she can tell that may has these issues with connecting and that she has mm-hmm. these trouble and she is genuinely you know or or is she genuinely i guess trying to be her friend because it's like with polly mm-hmm. they kind of straddle the line of like exploring this like female can like the female intimacy connection you know of just being friends you know for one of like understanding like polly like knows how mean people can be and stuff like that and then addresses may one way but then they also kind of go with like the predatory lesbian vibes a little bit Mm -hmm. but then at the at the same time it's like may never like rejects it obviously like may explores these feelings as well so then it's like okay they're not going the predatory lesbian like way that's what i thought they were originally like gonna go for a little yeah. bit but i'm glad they kind of scaled it back and then turned it more into like oh this is the free loving you know poly person which is um i mean progressive to do in 2002 which is i guess kind of funny <laughs> yeah, to think right? about but um but they were kind of more going for that character rather than like the, the uh, again the predatory gay. Yeah, that that confused me a lot when I first saw it because I saw I wasn't one of these cases of of you know May, uh, falling in my lap you know years down the road. I saw it probably late two thousand two, early two thousand three, just getting it from a rental store. So it hit me in high school, feeling a bit disheveled and kind of like, you know, I wasn't really, I didn't have a huge like social circle. So everybody talking about their relationships and uh, are they going to get drunk? Are they going to have sex? Whatever. I'm like, we're 15. What are you talking about? <laughs> right? I have no idea. I just don't, I want to pass algebra. That's all I care about right now. Uh, so I don't know. I had enough stress in my life just for daily crap. So I didn't really understand why they were making more drama for their lives. 
And so I felt a lot like May, like, okay, yeah, I, I understand that this is your life, but you were speaking a completely foreign language to yeah. me. <laughs> and so I'm just, I've been at those parties too. Like I remember the, you know, first times you get drunk sometimes or do any sort of substances that they're kind of like chilling out and they're casual and you're just tense. Like, how is everybody mm -hmm. okay with this right now? And they're like, have a drink. <laughs> and you feel like you're doing something that everybody should go to jail for. And mm -hmm. you're going to ruin your, your prospects in life. And you're going to, you know, if depending on your beliefs, you may have like ruined your, uh, your spiritual stances and stuff. Uh, and then you're pretty chill, you know, Yeah, <laughs> you just chill out with it. You ride the wave <laughs> with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You ride the wave. And, and that's kind of what May does, you know, at first it's like, you know, they have the the scene where it's like Polly's like kind of having the flurry conversations with her and like they have their like moment with the, the scalpel stuff and she's like all turned on by like the the, the finger prick. But then it's a, you know, Polly or not Polly, May, you know, is like, wait, are you actually trying to be nice to me? Do you actually like try and be friends or are you like, you know, trying to take advantage of me in some way? Yeah. But then there is still, like, they kind of do, you know, they, they strike the balance of, like, it being a, you know, Polly being like, hey, like, I, you know, get that you don't have friends. And, like, it, like when you're down, like, I want you to be able to, like, talk to me, too. Like, like there's very much that aspect. And then they, like, kind of transition it into, like, you know, there's those moments where you're with your friends and you're, you know, like, you're having a rough day and you sob your sad story into your friend's arms or there's the case like this where polly then is like okay like like what like you you are looking for connection in a way you know and maybe you just haven't explored the side of the spectrum of that connection so like i'm gonna mm -hmm. offer that to you as well and it's like for may as i get you know as a bisexual character i suppose like i mean they never canonically say it but i mean she is not like resentment towards those feelings and she does get jealous of Polly when um the other character Ambrosia comes in. So, you know, May exploring, you know, using or the movie using um the exploration of, you know, her craving this um uh, connection and like touch and things like that, using that to explore her bisexuality is like very interesting and like tying together like the emotional and physical. I think that's also why Polly may give off predatorial vibes, uh, even though it's not really, I don't think that was really her intention or anything ill behind her actions. Um, I do think that maybe she could, she was probably just a bit flippant at the wrong times here and there. Polly is just a nice self-centered kind of mm -hmm. Epicurean character. Who's just yeah. like, Hey, just live, laugh, love. It's all about me, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that's the wrong kind of person to teach May about yes. intimacy because Polly's just terrible intimacy. She sees intimacy as physical sex. It's uh, yeah. It's like the physical pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, between both characters, it's like, you know, again, it's like then you have Adam that is like, you know, sees that she's like, you know, new to certain things. So he's like was like very gentle about it. And then like even the recurring thing about like, you know, him giving her cigarettes and then like trying to teach her how. And then he gives her her own pack and tells her to practice. And then that ends up being like a character thing as you like just notice May getting better at smoking cigarettes throughout yeah. the entire movie. And like by the end, she like, you know, is like totally got it and stuff. 
Like even just like <laughs> little things like that. So it's like Adam was like a great teacher in that way versus, yeah, like you said, Polly's not the person, you know, because like you got to start on a level. You can't just like be like, okay, hey, look, uh, you know, intimacy is this. Like, yeah, like me and Ambrosia, like I just want banger, but like, hey, I do still like <laughs> you and stuff and like still like our times. Yeah. So it's like, you know, that's too much information to give someone yeah, like May. You know, that needs to, again, like you said, she needs to be taught the thing and then, but then also clarified with that she got the <laughs> thing. And I guess that's where Adam fails is like, he's teaching her things, but then also like not being like, hey, like, where, like, how much of this are you understanding, like, about where yeah. we're at, you know? Because, like, how much of this is just kind of like aesthetic taste or, me just like this is how i joke around and i just kind of like exactly really dark jokes and uh, Mm -hmm. to clarify this on the poly i don't want to make it sound as if somebody who is really you know voraciously sexual and enjoys their sexuality is bad at intimacy i just think yes it it was that uh, it's i don't want to put it on poly i want to put it on may because she doesn't understand well she really seemed to get her wires crossed a lot to the film. And so when she needed one sort of validation, she just kept going for the wrong person for the wrong validation. So when she, yes, is, which also brings a nice grayness to that bisexuality, uh, if you will. Cause I think a lot of the times when she was more craving physical, uh, physical intimacy, she would go to Adam, but he would more be like, I'm ready f- to just talk and get to know you. Yeah. And when she was just wanting to like have girl talk and just have somebody understand her, like, well, you're a woman, Polly. And you then, probably understand how this is. Polly's like, sure, let's fuck. Boom. <laughs> you know? Oh my God. That is so perfect. I didn't, yeah. They didn't, man, this movie is bisexual as fuck. Why don't yeah, people man. talk about that more? <laughs> oh, man. It's right there. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much going on in this movie. And like I said, like, I very much like enjoyed watching it i took so many notes for this one um some uh some of the notes that i did take though are also just some brilliant lines that uh come up throughout this movie um there that because i like that there's a good balance of like yeah like that is like good flirty banter but then there are just like mm-hmm. off the wall lines that come out of nowhere in this movie mainly um, anna Ferris. mainly anna Ferris. <laughs> My I I think my favorite line though is um Bench Goth when he goes back to May's place and he's like he's sitting there and he goes, Man, it's so hot in here, can I take my shirt off? And she's like, Yeah, do whatever you want. And then he sits there for a minute and he goes, Oh man, it's still so hot. Like, you got any ice I could rub on my nipples? I would go, What? <laughs> I was oh like, yeah. I was like, imagine how 15 year old me felt when I uh, heard that. I was like, who does this? Exactly. (laughs) Like who, I was like, wait, what? So it's like, there's just so many things like that one's a really off the wall one. But then I love, there's, um, uh, a moment where, uh, Adam is asking May about like what she does. And he's like, Oh, you work at the vet clinic. And then she's like, yeah, uh, it's super gross. And he goes, I love gross. He goes, disgust me, please. And I was like, Ooh, I was like, that was smooth. And it like felt yeah. natural though, too. Like, in just like, like in the way that he is like the, the initial way that he engages her is like very fantastic. Like I think, and like yeah. the way that he like, cause it's like so many of the times that like, you know, 
they're together and like he's talking like she'll be just like so she won't be saying a word you know but I love how he doesn't like check out from that though you know they they have really great banter together wonderfully witty I do love that about her I think that May is a great example of a character that uh doesn't know how cool she is and how good she is at communicating yeah she just has like that one input thing fixed i think she would have been a pretty charismatic kind of leadership type person because she gets shit done and she can banter with people like you said she taught herself how to smoke properly like exactly seeing somebody do it once and that's like kind of the May that we see in the third act of the movie is like you kind of notice like mm-hmm. her dialogue kind of changes a little bit and she like doesn't have like hesitation in her delivery anymore. Like the the subtle switch of like when she puts this Halloween costume on, you know, of like becoming a better person or a different person, um, it you know, kind of this reinforces the themes of the dolls, you know, that she's been able like you know, she makes her own clothes, so it's like she kind of treats herself as a doll. And then, like, now at the end of the movie, yeah. she, like, makes herself up to look like Susie for this Halloween costume while she goes and collects people in her cooler. And everybody she encounters with, she's, like, on it. Like, is that, like, when he when she goes to see Polly and um and sees Ambrosia and she, and, and she goes, and she's like, oh, hey, nice gams. And it's like, one, that's something that nobody says anymore. But then also is just like, yeah, one of those things. It's like, see, you could be just like super cool. Like, you know, if you just knew. <laughs> yeah, but she feels that she has to pretend to be. It's funny. Like it, it's the doll. The doll has just been in a glass case the whole, her whole life. And suddenly she just feels like, well, I am the doll. I am, I'm Susie. So I'm the cool one now. But I'm like, that's always been part of you, May. You just. Exactly. You didn't realize it because you've closeted it. I mean, the whole allegory there when the the case gets shattered, and from that point on, that's when slowly May starts to let go of the fact that okay, she doesn't have this doll trapped in a case somewhere in her room anymore. Okay, she just frees herself up to just be this. That is so perfect too. Um, yeah, like very, like it's like I, I made a note that said like sometimes like making your message and themes like on the nose like works out like really well and like it does like with like having this like literal like you said embodiment of may's character through Susie, and then being put in this you know protective glass box like all those things um like it's obviously just so on the nose about it but then at the same time it's like well that works out and then like also the way that they like bring back the line from at the beginning of the movie when she's given the doll and her mom says, if you can't, uh, what did she say? It's, uh, if you can't find a friend, make one Yeah, and gives one. her the doll. And then that's May's, you know, comeback when she has the realization of, oh, I'm going to just make my perfect person, you know, again, talking about parts versus somebody as a whole. And they kind of look at that as, you know, as far as a, personality thing too you know like uh adam has to keep telling her that like uh perfect doesn't exist like you know people have flaws and like that's something that she like struggles with like of okay but why though why do people have to have flaws like you Mm -hmm. know so it's like she can't learn this lesson that it's just like yeah like a whole of a person's never gonna be perfect but like you know but she she's interested in the parts though (laughs) is what she is what she wants 
and and back to that idea of her being like a good leader or at least she's a good innovator and uh she's a visionary because she that question of why though it's more like but i bet you i can make the perfect person because that's what when she gets confidence that's what she does she's like you can't hold me back from anything but the confidence also turns into that mm-hmm. message of well everybody has imperfections she's like not under my watch I'm about to prove it to you and I'm going to get all the perfect parts and I'm going to make a perfect person. And then I may can be a perfect person. I think that's also why the on the nose stuff works is because as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our discussion, how with the cracking of the glass and stuff, it's like, is this supernatural? Is she getting possessed by this doll? And I'm like, no, it's, it's projection. Mm-hmm. You know, May's really good at projecting things, which you see very well when she has the body in front of her. Mm-hmm. And because of the body, if she didn't make the body, I think we'd have a different conversation to be talking about. Like, does she get possessed by a doll at the end of this really? Exactly. Movie? But then, yeah. yeah but, but then once we see her, her creation by the end and yeah, what she's, yeah. what she's projecting, um, some, some great horror imagery there. Um, we've had, you know, how many different, you know, takes on Frankenstein and influences from Frankenstein, but something about this one really worked on her stitching together these body parts, but then also like her like sewing clothes materials and stuff. Again, in the early 2000s, what were we doing, people? This was yeah. not that long ago, and it was it's the worst fashion era there's ever been. What was up with people <laughs> wearing shirts with just random patches of fabrics? Yeah, right. safety pinned onto them. Lace just randomly strapped on there. And remember how that was like such a cool thing back in those times too. Like if you made your own clothes, it's like now everybody's got an Etsy shop, but like back in the day, that was like a signature hallmark again, like, like somebody that would be like typically cool. Like think about that today. Like, yeah, may would be like one of the coolest people ever. But again, Ooh, this, um, the, the fashion was a a nightmare, but, uh, but yeah, the, the, her, her Frankenstein creation is, Real, real unsettling. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the more disturbing things I've ever seen. Every time I see a screenshot of it, it's it's one of those images that I think my brain just kind of throws away because I don't want to hold on to it anymore. And I see it again. I'm like, all right, this movie's so fucked up. I forgot. That. It rem- you know, I keep forgetting those stone eyes that she puts. Yeah, on it, it, it it reminds me of like, oh my god, like the fucking like body pillows that they make that you can get the body pillows that have arms that yeah. people get because they want to just sleep with someone at night. They just want yeah. that feeling. And that's literally what she makes. Disgusting. Um, yeah, there's some great horrific imagery in there with that. We get some great gore, um, some, some really good kills, scalpels to the head, uh, Jesus, yeah. neck slits like uh she stabs the punk dude through both of his hands into his head i love it when people do mm-hmm. that for some reason real, real i had the same thing sport. with the scalpels to the head it gives yeah that kind of kill bill vibe when she gets hit with the uh that was a table leg in kill bill yeah when she's fighting uh, one of the there's a girl with the, the school girl outfit yeah 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 uh yeah, because she like she bleeds very similarly. But what I love the most, I, my thing is like when people are doing something normal and then the kill just casually comes out of nowhere. So for May to catch her while she was drinking the milk and her just looked like, what the fuck just happened? And then just drop the milk was such a it went from a haha kill to, oh, my God, what just happened? Right. Quiet moment. And all the kills you can are... still make us feel that way. Yeah, all the kills are filmed in like a really weird way because like they'll show some of it or they will cut to the aftermath and then they'll do like quick flashes back to what just happened. Like if they don't want to show the whole thing, Mm -hmm. like 
and which some people might like hate like i the only time that bothered me is that adam's death was that way and it's like okay come on like yeah we wanted to see adam's death because i really loved fucking uh polly's death like <sighs> that that one was like really good like just like calling back from like the stuff earlier in the movie like they're like little weird isms that like they like the pain stuff and then like the, yeah. the poking and then saying that she trusts Maeve and like really like stuff that May has never had before. Like Polly is like a genuine friend that is just like, nope, like and then just so casually there's no scream either. And it's just no. so quiet. It's a, a very effective kill. I, it also is so tragic to me because I felt like that was the moment in the film where May finally got what she's looking for the whole film, but it's exactly. too late. Exactly. <laughs> like, damn. Like, oh, so good. But last thing before we move on to Jennifer's body, got to backtrack to the biggest what the fuck scene for me of this <laughs> okay. movie. So um, May is um, enamored by these uh, blind kids she sees in the park when her and Adam are hanging out. She learns that it's these blind kids at this daycare center, and she decides she wants to go volunteer there, which makes sense. Um, you know, we have the recurring thing of eyes with May having her lazy eye, but then we have the recurring thing of hands, which is how blind people see, you know, and so we. She, I, I was like, okay, where are we going to go with this? And it's this little random side adventure with one, proved back in the day how easy it was for like she could have been a child predator and they gave her that job so easily oh, so yeah. weird super fast <laughs> um so she so she volunteers right uh to connect with these children that obviously you know are probably having a hard time connecting with others as well she sees one that is like a particular loner amongst the group and um and so the scene where she brings Susie to the to the daycare and then, um, which one I thought was hilarious. She goes, Hey, I got something to show you guys. And it's, they, <laughs> she's trying to show some blind kids, a, a doll. Yeah. And it's also in a case. So they're also like, wait, it's just a glass box. What is this? And she goes, <laughs> no, no in it. And it's like, they can't see in it, man. <laughs> so I'm laughing at that. Right. And then, but then the kids start getting like, weirdly un like super restless and they're like no no we want to see it we want inside and so they're like pulling at it you know they're pulling she's like no 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 they drop she drops the Susie case the glass shatters everywhere and then these kids start crawling around on the ground like over the broken glass yeah. i was like stop this what no <laughs> And she's not even caring about the kids. She just gets, you know, Susie, who's all broken up. She's scooping up the body parts while kids are just crying, crawling around on broken glass. So weird. And the, you have like your head daycare instructor there who like is their teacher who just stares and watches these really just mean kids. Just like, no, I want to open it. And not go now, now, Jeffrey. You need to tone that down right. a little bit. Stop touching. This is her personal property. Leave it alone. She does nothing. She's just like huh, May. Kids, am I right? Until the morning <laughs> in the glass, and suddenly she's like, May, what did you do? <laughs> it is such a weirdly horrifying scene. And yeah. the, and 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 by the way that the kids like started doing that, and like how everything was going down, I thought it was a dream. 
I was like, oh, this is going to be like a dream sequence. You know, May's starting to lose it. No, no, no. She is losing it, but that also yeah. happened. And I was like, whoa. I was like, okay, what? this movie is going to some real, real weird places. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the main reason it's there is to just kind of prep you. Like, you know, the blood you've seen so far was a little eroticized. Yes. It's sensual stuff. You know, it's like if you're watching Secretary how it was exploring very similar themes to that, but they're like, yeah, but what if secretary turned into a bloody nightmare? You know, that's kind of where they're going. And yeah. they needed to prep us, I think for the scenes that were to come, because we saw the shit with the kids. Like, if you're going to do that, what else are you going to do? And it creates so exactly. much tension later in the film. Exactly. And then you don't get it. I think that's why Adam's scene pissed you off is because it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh. you give me the freaky, like kids walking through glass scene, but, Adam, I get to hear scream from outside his house. Yeah. I wanted to see the hand removal. We were waiting for it the whole <laughs> the whole movie. Uh, love how um, May's selection from Polly was her neck. That's really yeah. funny to me. She's like, I love your neck. Because uh, I'm a weird person like that, too. I look at, like, like I'm a, like, I'm like, man, I was like, you know how fucking underrated, like, a gold, a good, like, shoulder bicep combo is? <laughs> like, I mean, like, I'm all about May's uh, specif- specif- uh, specificity. There we go. Um, guys, if you haven't seen this movie, please do yourself a favor. It is so, so good. Um, I'm so glad that you um, suggested this movie. Um, it was, like, a very great watch on a nice, lazy Sunday morning. And uh, now we get to find out your feelings on uh, your first-time watch. <laughs> Jennifer's Body, released in 2009, written by Diablo Cody and directed by Karen Kusama. Um, these are two um, people that are very synonymous with their specific styles that they do. Um, Karen Kusama and her like kind of exploration of women and feminism in her films, and then Diablo Cody is known for their snappy dialogue and like you know um creating these like very specific characters as she did in juno and tully uh karen kusama directed the invitation um and most recently the destroyer or destroyer um very talented uh director and so it's kind of weird that they did this back in 2009 and it doesn't i mean this movie is the most 2009 movie that could exist but at the same time doesn't feel like like as far as a movie and like what it was exploring does not belong in 2009 so it's a very um interesting thing here i'm sure hopefully by this point you guys have seen jennifer's body um i mean because it did a lot of people did see it when it initially came out under the guise of it being a you know sexy horror comedy and i mean it is kind of that but it's a lot more than that as well um, it follows the friendship between uh, Jennifer and Needy, played by Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. And it is, they've been friends since they were kids, and then they're in high school now. Needy is very shy and, like, kind of nerdy. But, I mean, come on, you don't just frizz up and curl a girl's hair and throw glasses on her and say she's not hot anymore. Because Amanda Seyfried's still hot. But, of course, um, everything about the marketing was um, exploiting Megan Fox, you know, she's hot off of her Transformers debut a couple of years previous. 
And so they're like, yeah, like we're going to get everybody. They slather all over the posters and blood and no clothes. And, you know, um, they were even going to the uh, uh, one promo idea that they had. They were going to try and promote the movie through an amateur porn website um, with Megan Fox. Bunch of bunch of interesting things about this marketing strategy and like you know if you uh listen to karen kusama now she's not shy about talking about the experience of making that movie either as far as like the way that rolled out because it you know again had gave people a perception of it and then they went and actually saw it and they go okay that's this is not the movie i thought the girls are talking about their feelings and about their body and Oh, and we're exploring things like that. But then they're like, oh, hey, let's take this makeout scene out of context and put it in the trailer. And that's how we're going to get people because this is the the movie about the friendship and they're going to make out and it's going to be so hot and stuff. And it's like, no, that's not what this movie is. So it's um, very interesting. So Chandler got to watch it for the first time now. So I'm intrigued on what your initial thoughts about Jennifer's body are. I have so many. Um there and just depending on where you are in the film i have different you know feelings and thoughts on it uh you can definitely see at points where the studio involvement started to come into play like ah these are your trailer shots okay because the rest of the movie i think i immediately went onto twitter and i said if this movie was made today it would either be on a24 or neon that's the kind of movie that i just 100 percent. you know this was hereditary levels it could have been hereditary levels but i think the studio was like no no no, it's megan fox uh, let's keep that teen vibe because all those marketing things that you were talking about just now, I could see a twist on every single one of them that would have made it work for the film. If you kept playing up the demonic succubus aspect of that and really making people really uncomfortable by going into it. Cause it's like, you get something really gross or negative out of the whole thing because what this movie does, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself in that, but just like what this movie does with exploring this demonic version of Jennifer versus all of the stuff that was established early on in the film with Jennifer. It just blew me away. I loved it so much how intricately woven that character is. And you always have these question marks of like, is there anything left of this girl or is this Mm -hmm. demon just picking up on the tiniest shit that was left inside of her psyche? I can't tell. And that's what makes it beautiful. Yeah, the the exploration that I like of like what they kind of go into it is like you said like she you they've gotten to a point in their friendship where they're already kind of growing apart because they're just kind of so different um you know and the way that they interact with each other you know even before um her transformation happens doesn't give off the vibes that you'd think of like oh these are lifelong best friends like it's not even like that playfulness anymore it's like Jennifer's already just kind of mean to needy and stuff like even though needy just like obviously cares for her more than jennifer cares for her and you know the detailed you know way that they go through and um show how you know within these female uh friendships there can be this like kind of resentment there's almost there like you know i've heard um women talk about like that there's this underlying like competition like between right women even though you're friends you know you can be the best of friends there's always this like underlying thing i mean and that's not limited to women either i mean i'm like one of those people i've had the same best friend for 11 years and like he's like the more 
Um, Tyler's more the like standard, like this is what a typical good looking guy looks like. And like, you know, and you know, the, the way that our, you know, lives have went and like the way that you feel within your roles uh, in the friendship, you know? So it's like, I, I like that, how they explore that here. And like, obviously that's like, you know, pertinent to have a female director and female writer that can really dive into that. But like, it's very, it's very nuanced, but again, it's like not what people think about. People just think, Oh, well that's just sexual tension because they're going to make out later, you know? And it's like, it's (laughs) so much more than that. It is more. I, so for me, this movie, the reason why it like hit me so heavily um, beyond just my own, you know, pre like preconceptions of what the film is going to be is also what I read through. It, it's like the theme of the film kept kind of hitting me was there's always another perspective and there's always another side to each situation and each story. And so I could see those, the sexual tension, but more like a loving tension. So you're right. I did see moments where Jennifer was just kind of like, God, you're so boring, Needy. But there are also moments when I thought she was doing it because she was trying to express to Needy, like, you're the, I'm the only one who should have your attention. I hate that you have a boyfriend. I hate that you are drifting away from me. Um, and so she kind of, you, you're right, the, the playful, like the, the teasing seemed a little less playful to me, but I also saw moments of her teasing her kind of like she was dating her in certain uh, circumstances. Now, granted, I saw oh, the yeah. unrated version, so there are also some cuts that are a bit longer here and there, and it, I could see so many different ways. Like, if I wanted to see it from this perspective, I'm going to see this. If I wanted to watch it from this perspective, I'm going to see this. Yeah. It seemed like it was exposing how just because you hear a story a certain way or just because you experience a human being a certain way doesn't mean that they have a completely different facet and understanding of themselves that you will never know and that you need to be considerate to. Yeah, um, I'm I'm glad that you you mentioned which version you watched. Um, I did not. Well, I rewatched it like a month or so ago. I okay. didn't get to watch the unrated one. I don't think I did. I think I watched the regular theatrical one. Um, uh, there's one way to tell really clearly. Uh, did they have the, the, the kids have a bit of a spat with mom at the funeral? No. Okay, so, then you still do theatrical. Yeah. There, there's that, and then I know um, in the unrated one, they took out, like, a um, a pretty iconic line that's in it, um, where they say, uh, yeah. hell is a teenage girl, and this was this was on every girl's Tumblr bio. It was uh, quoted about uh, quite often, and they removed that in the unrated one, which is interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, that is interesting. But, um, but yeah, like, and, and I wish that I was able to watch the unrated one, and, like, yeah, like them explore like that angle because yeah pretty much the the reason that i want to pair it in this month anyways is because like i said it's like this is a, about a, a movie about love but a different type of love you know but then also uh friend within a friendship though like you know there is that like when people like joke about like like oh are you in love with your best friend you know like you know what that looks like compared to like a normal best friend. Like even when people joke about it and, and, and they, and they do show that really well. And like, there's like two, two scenes specifically, like in the, uh, you know, in the movie that I think about, it's like 
the the two scenes where I like see like the genuine relationship between them because like you said like Jennifer might even be doing that like mean and teasiness stuff just to like yeah like kind of remind needy of things but that's also like what she kind of does in public mm-hmm. but then there's like there uh, the the scene when they're at the um at the bar for the performance like before like the performance starts and then during the performance too like when they're just like kind of having like they're having a conversation it's finally yeah like it at that point this is like our first taste of like actually seeing jennifer you know in the yeah. film besides what we've seen just through needy's eyes like now is this is like what we're okay this is jennifer's character and then it's like another scene later whenever jennifer finally tells needy everything that happened and explains you know how she got turned into a succubus what's happening again it's like it, I don't know if it's shot because like they make Megan Fox's room like still look like the room of a seven year old, but it's like you, in that moment the way that they're talking to each other is like they're like young girls again, you know. And it's like those two scenes like very much do stick out in their relationship, and that later one is like you know what eventually turns into them making out, but it's but it's a it's happening in a like you know Jennifer comforting needy in like basically being like hey like like i know you feel a certain way and like you you're kind of confused in some of the ways you're feeling and it's like and just saying like it's okay like it's a very like comforting like makeout scene it's not meant to be like sexy you know yeah exactly i mean if it is you know that's just kind of you know it's a it's a female director using the male gaze to kind of toy with you a little bit and try to uh hopefully and i think they did a good job you know make you a little uncomfortable with the fact that you're reading it that way because of you know what you pointed out there is this underlying of no it's it's, she's just kind of comforting her friend and because there is that demon inside of her though when uh needy gets like a little you know she kind of notices herself kind of getting into it a bit too much and she pushes her away you have that little grin on jennifer's face which is more the demon like gotcha yes because she is a succubus she feeds off of arousal so i'm sure she on some level fed a little bit off of needy there yeah yeah which is also kind of saying it to the audience like gotcha with the scene yeah like okay hey don't 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 like jennifer too much still you know like still kind (laughs) of still kind of remind you and I, I wish there were more movies with Succubi in them. I'm actually writing yeah. a movie that involves Succubi. One of my favorite yeah. shows uh, is uh, this uh, Canadian sci-fi show, Lost Girl. Um, hmm. Highly recommend to everybody. It is also super bisexual. It's like one of the main things about the, about the show. It follows this character who she like finds out she's a succubus and like how, how she uses it. She's a bisexual character. Her girlfriend's a human, her boyfriend's a werewolf, and all sorts of things going on. So, um, definitely in line with the show. So, I wonder what that says about, like, exploring bisexuality through Succubi. Like, are Succubi the uh, unofficial mascot of the bisexuals now? I think they are at least the mascot of open sexuality. Is kind of how we have Polly, mm-hmm. who is, in her name, Polly. She's polyamorous. So she she allows uh, may yeah. the freedom to just kind of like explore all of that stuff and whereas polly has that mild predatory thing just because she is just this tigress who's always just like on the hunt yes uh, you know, <laughs> her, 
Jennifer embodies that when she's alive and she literally becomes that when she is the succubus. So then of course, uh, it's really up to needy at this point is us watching her kind of like, all right, cool. Let's do this. We're like, we're like, yeah, well, I think you learned something about yourself today, needy. <laughs> yeah. Like very true. I like how you, um, you know, mentioned Jennifer and like the way that she like kind of is already feeding off of people, like even before she's a succubus and like, cause she is that typical, like overwhelmingly hot girl in the small town, you know, that knows it. So it's like, she is already like kind of feeding in a way. And then it's like, yeah, now she's just turned into the literal monster embodiment of like, you know, what she is. So like speaking of like, you know, monster stuff, want to get into the genre grinder a little bit and talk about the subgenres going on here in Jennifer's body. And, uh, you know, it, dark comedy is definitely there, but then, you know, the body horror aspect, you know, being physical body horror, but then like kind of what it's, what it stands for in place of like, you know, various, various aspects of womanhood. I, I wouldn't say it's like yeah. kind of stands for it as a whole or, it, but it's also not the traditional, like, Oh, this is the stand in for puberty. It's not that <laughs> <No>. either. You know, <laughs> they kind of go into a little bit more, but, and then it's like, you know, is this, this is a pretty full on creature feature. We got good gore. We got lots of kills. Um, I like the blending of the practical and CGI effects with uh, Jennifer and all of her succubus scenes. Um, so it definitely goes into creature feature territory. While I was rewatching the kill count, didn't realize how many people died in the movie. And like, it's a quiet bit. So it's like this, it, it's very dark and witty, but then it's like, I think, yeah, people were also surprised by how gory it actually is. Like, they're like, oh, you promised me the sexy, funny movie. Yeah. It's like it is that, but it's also this. <laughs> if I if I think of two thousand nine, I think the reason why it didn't do as well, apart from this uh, the abysmal marketing that it had, was indeed people thought, well, normally when you get a you know an attractive woman like this who is already been shown a lot in things like Transformers, and they're going to do a rated R movie, it's the time she's going to you know we're going to see Megan Fox naked. It's going to be awesome. That's the promise that they took away from the film. And, like, and it's going to be a teenage horror film, so it's probably going to be schlocky and stupid and all about, you know, they're thinking 80s movies. You know, it's just all about underwear and, and sex, and then every now and then you get a kill. And then what they got actually was a movie that tries to explore female friendships and just rips dudes apart constantly with glee. Yes. <laughs> and then it teases you with the Megan Fox stuff because it knows who is actually watching the movie. And if you care about that, it's like, <laughs> you're not going to get it. And, it, you know, I think people got a little blue balled and, and pissed off when they uh, saw it, especially. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest. I'm happy I did not see it in 2009 mm -hmm. because 2009 me was not as uh, empathetically open and thoughtful as I am now. So I probably would have also trashed this film. And I'm happy that I got to have an experience where I saw so many different layers to it and really appreciate it. Yeah, like, I mean, there the the scene where Jennifer kills Colin is, like, the literal blue-balling of the audience, like, yes. of Karen Kusama being like, oh, you thought you were going to get a sexy death scene, like, covered in blood? It's like, nah, we're going to shoot it in this tasteful silhouette mm -hmm. style with the blood splattering on the walls. So it's like, I'll still give you some of the blood, but I'm not going to yeah. give you, you know, exactly what you want out of this. So I, I do love how that's, like, kind of very um representative of the the film itself 
Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of representing things, again, this is like such a 2009 movie, like to the upteenth degree. Um, this soundtrack, because this movie came out my freshman year. It was my freshman year of high school. So, I mean, I was all about my panic at the disco, Florence and the Machine. <laughs> we got Haley Williams on there. Cute is what we aim yeah. for. They only have like two good songs, and one of them is on here. I mean, Cobra <laughs> Starship. Um, I mean, it, it was the who's all of, you know, late 2000s era uh, indie alternative pop sounds, and it's it's so good. Oh, it's it's such a banging soundtrack, and uh, I I graduated in two thousand five, and what they did, you know, you have a good soundtrack, especially when it for a genre as specific as say either teen or college films. Mm-hmm. If you outside of that, either if you came from a generation before or a generation after, and you can just imagine immediately what the soundtrack would have been with the bands that you had, because the sound would have been exactly the same exactly you know, it probably would have been like the strokes or some 41 yep. would have been on there you know uh we would have had a little bit of uh 50 cent would probably have been thrown in there somehow like candy shop or something yeah uh, <laughs> it, <you know? laughs> uh, it would have had uh, or a lot of metal actually i mean if you look at freddie versus jason oh yeah a lot of metal would have jumped on that and i was so happy they they really decided to make the soundtrack just Jennifer's soundtrack because you have that yes. establishing shot. Was it Fallout Boy? Was the poster that she had? Yes. Yeah, I love that Fallout Boy is not even on the damn soundtrack. They're not on the soundtrack, but yes, they are <laughs> represented in the poster. Uh, that just yeah. that just shows where um, Diablo Cody or Karen Kusama falls on the Panic versus Fallout Boy war mm-hmm. they're obviously team panic Who we listened to <laughs> they were they were team panic and then panic ended up yeah. doing like the music video that was the the movie tie-in as well with a new perspective absolute banger of a song one of my all-time favorite panic songs i uh i did try to uh i i um want to do a talent show and i auditioned with that song and then they're like yeah. and then they were like hey you can't say go down on me i go what do you mean (laughs) (laughs) like you can't say that and me being a freshman i was like uh whatever (laughs) and then of course don't be so weird stop yeah Yeah, whatever yeah stop being weird grow up but yeah so good may may also had a really good soundtrack but it doesn't have like as many big names and stuff on it but it just also captured just like the again like 2002 that is that yeah. movie, you know, 2002 post college artsy fartsy. I make my own short films for fun and I'm a seamstress, you know, that I remember so many people that I knew, like my mom's best friend was or is still a painter and she's, you know, my, a few generations ahead of me, but even still, like the people she hung out with who were closer to my age, they really had all these like slow kind of post grunge kind of songs or you know getting the, like your dresden dolls kind of sounds and i think that both of these movies that might be why they pair so well together is that they're so quintessentially of their time and they mm-hmm. hit the zeitgeist in a particular way of just how people were feeling at the at the time yeah like i mean 100 percent and and like i said like in the intro Something about movies from the aughts are just, like, very good at doing that and, like, transporting you into that, like, very specific year. And it's, like, and when I rewatched it, I remember, like, thinking, like, it does it, but also, like, 
it like it does like date like obviously like some of the pop culture and stuff but like for the most part though like i would say like 90 percent of the jokes like still hold up even by like today's standards you know um opposed to like you know 2009 oh yeah can i please just say real quick about diablo cody's writing here beyond just it being incredibly smart writing and and layered but just the the dialogue uh i was that's where the pre uh conceived notions come into play i was expecting that cringe ass oh god i'm a 30 year old who's writing for these 15 year old or 18 year old characters and I was really expecting it to be kind of like the Joss Whedon syndrome where yeah, this is what I think they sound like, you know, but they sounded like kids that went to school in 2009 and me graduating 2005. I just felt like, Oh, I have never heard a teenager say things the way I would have as a teenager or now. Like I portmanteau and make up words all the time and they do this constantly. Yeah. I won't say them because they're very problematic. <laughs> uh, maybe we could change uh, what we portmanteau, but uh, I was just like, Oh, what I, I, I was looking at my girlfriend. I said, I do that. And she said, yeah, what the <laughs> yeah. shocked with how real they were. Yeah. When you like, yeah. When you make up words or like sayings that sound like sayings, but really aren't like when Jennifer's like, you're so, you're so jello. You're so lime green jello and you don't even know lime it. Green jello, yeah. And it's just like, that is exactly like, yeah. What high schoolers sounded like in that era. Uh, Diablo Cody is very good at that. And, um, you know, crafting characters and stuff. Um, I know a lot of people weren't as big of a fan of Tolly, but I very much enjoyed it. I would like Diablo Cody to write something even more, you know, traditionally horror like this, like yes. as composed to Tolly. That's like more of a cerebral genre film. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it, it, it's so so good and um and again like weird that Karen Kusama like did this back in 2009 and that was like and then I remember watching the invitation 2015 I was like Ooh, who's this director like I gotta be on the lookout for them and then saw that it was Karen Kusama who did this and that's like whoa like what that, like <laughs> talk about like you know a switch up but it, it it's very good the only thing that I would say is like um they, there's sometimes like the the presentation's a little bland sometimes in mm-hmm. here that this is where i kind of wish it was even a little bit more 2000s you know it's like because we <laughs> we do get like some like really great stuff like once we get to like the the third act and it's like we have like the like murky abandoned rec center you know like and the right. way that they dress that up like really gave it some like really great texture to the film but mm-hmm. there, but aside from like a few scenes throughout, not as much of that, and I wish it was like more than that. But then again, that's kind of where this was a, a a bigger studios film, you know, and they were getting yeah. it up to make money and for it to be this big thing. So, you know, I very much like. I mean, I'm sure the director's cut is a little bit better, but I also just would like to see. It's like there's probably just like so many things that she wanted to film that didn't even get to film it with the option of putting it back in. So it's like, I, w- I would love to see what Karen Kusama's gem for- I-, I would like her to remake her own film in like another hey, if 10. Me, if Lucky McKee can do it, you know. Exactly. In like another 10 or 15 years, I think that would be really cool if Karen Kusama's like, let yeah. me do Jennifer's body again and do it my way. Put, that would put be some weird. Data in it. That'd be so weird. I would love that. But 
Uh, yeah. Glad you enjoyed your uh, first time watch of it. Um, it's so great. Um, how do you feel about Through the Trees, um, performed by Low Shoulder, but actually performed by the band No Country? Um, Adam Brody, uh, unfortunately, did not sing it. Um, he did oh, lip sync it. But um, but yeah, what, what do you think about the song that you hear like four different times throughout this movie? <laughs> <laughs> what I loved about the song was I think it was one of the, the more. So, OK, what I, th- I think the movie did really well in general was because they do raise some pretty dark themes. Like uh, there are a lot of things that we haven't even touched on that. And maybe we won't just because they it can go a little heavy at times in this film um, that they didn't really play a lot of jokes at the expense of a lot of the character development and people's emotions so they Mm -hmm. played the jokes in very safe places like douchebag music based off of a tragedy and them trying to be like their heroes who are just they're really upset about it and you know man yeah never forget it and oh it was perfect for that i love Mm -hmm. exactly what they wanted it was demonic maroon five and they nailed it yep like that is like exactly (laughs) what it is from their look to the sound and like yeah yeah, like but like each time you like listen to the song then you're like actually listen closer to the lyrics and like you're realizing the darkness in the lyrics as like the film like progressively gets darker as well but like because yeah. at that very first time you're just like oh this is like kind of oh yeah i would put this on really? my i would put this at my you know late night thoughts playlist and cry to myself like yeah this is a good one then like by the end you're like like wait through the woods i'll follow you i'll do that like wait 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 where are you guys wait, going what, what? with this <laughs> They flat out told Jennifer what was going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, um, and and again, I like that, you know, having a female director and the way that they portrayed, like, her whole assault and everything, it, like, obviously, mm-hmm. um, very rapey, um, you know, not necessarily rapey in the traditional sense, but, like, still feels that way. And then, like, the way that they uh, do the sacrifice scene, um, it is like, it, it's effective, it's uncomfortable, but then it's like very not like indulgent by like any means. So it's like, again, exactly. like kind of showing some of the care that Karen Kazama would put in that, that if, if it were, if the, if the horny producers, you know, that were in charge of this movie would have got the director they wanted. And then this would, could have been all kinds of bad. So at least yeah. she was able to not budge on that. And I think that assault is a very good example of that skill that they showed with the humor, how they have interjections in between that are both funny, but also made my heart sink more because you know that these frat boys who do prey on women and don't see anything about it, they Mm -hmm. probably make jokes like this in the moments and get your hopes up and then still, you know, they like to hit their mark or something. Uh, But, you know, but they're talking about like, what kind of knife is that, bro? Oh, it's Bowie knife. Bowie, nice. Like it's so <laughs> stupid thing to focus on in the middle of a satanic like sacrifice, um, and it would be just as stupid in a situation like an assault to do it as well. Um, like I don't, I don't know how real, like real, real you want to go uh, with anything like this because there were some observations I had that were oh please in there, but we, yeah. Oh, I got it. I, I got it for get your observations here. Okay, so for me, one of the big things for it, and I just want to give a trigger warning to anybody who's listening, since you know we've already you know used the word rape and talked about assault, but uh, this is going to talk a little bit more about it in in, in an emotional sense. So if you're not cool with that, um, please take a moment for yourself or skip ahead until the conversation's over. 
but I felt that there were a lot of uh, elements of rape revenge in the story without the revenge angle, but more about an honest depiction of how women tend to like, so how women are perceived when they're grieving over something like sexual assault mm -hmm. versus how they actually feel. So they use the allegory of Jennifer deteriorating and draining because she's hungry versus when it's actually probably, well, not actually, but you know, if you were to look at it in real world terms of somebody post sexual assault, they're drained emotionally, they're drained of all sense of self. Um, and, you know, uh, one thing that women can be attacked for is if they still have a very healthy sexual appetite after such an event. And they're considered, oh, you're just a slut or, oh, you know, that's when you get those really awful comments of whether somebody deserved it or something mm -hmm. like that. And I think they did a great job of showing how somebody kind of develops a sense of only people have only ever treated me as if I was worthy of being a sexual object. So she takes advantage of it earlier on. She gets attacked and then as a monster, she uses it to prey upon people. But I do feel a lot of it is her kind of not really being able to deal with herself so much. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, she's doing what gets, it's like a psychological thing more. It's more of a subconscious thing where you, you kind of try to feed the dopamine or the things that have always worked for you to get the the joy out of a social encounter. Mm -hmm. But I know that for a lot of people outside of assault, I've had friends who've been assaulted. I've had family members who've been assaulted as such. It changes you to a degree that it's really, you are literally a different person afterwards. And it's more important that people around you start to love you for you now because you have changed and something has been taken from you versus them wanting you to get back to who you were. I think that's where this movie kind of what it kind of plays upon is mm -hmm. needy really pushes jennifer throughout the whole film to be back to who she was but i'm so curious how it would have turned out if she would have leaned a little bit more into i'm going to be buddy cop with the succubus and try to teach her how to do this in a way that isn't uber evil or something but needy as mm -hmm. the name implies was very needy for her own feelings and her own needs and that's not wrong either. And the movie yes. just creates this blur there that you can't really blame a lot of people for a lot of things. Basically, you can blame Nikolai and Chris Pratt. That's about like where the yeah. blame <laughs> sits throughout most of the movie. Yeah. For my feelings, at least. <laughs> no, that that is, I love that observation. And like, because I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, so it, it's kind of in a lose-lose situation because Jennifer, she gets turned into a succubus because through the sacrifice... Um, they were supposed to sacrifice a virgin. She is not a virgin, but they lied. They say she's a virgin to try to, in hopes that like maybe they wouldn't be interested in her. And then Jennifer does the same thing before they kidnap her. But then they're, but instead it's exactly what they were wanting. They're like, oh no, like we're looking for a virgin. And then like, so it's like the fact that of, you know, Jennifer, it's like kind of being in the way, like you said, like, oh, did she deserve it? Like, she's somebody that has had, you know, sexual encounters already. And like, and she doesn't make like a big deal about it. like, they like kind of have like a funny conversation about it. But it's like, not like, you know, like, she's not like demeaning of it. Obviously, it's like something that mm -hmm. she's just like, perfectly comfortable with. But then so it's like, is the movie like trying to be like, you know, oh, 
you know, saying like, you know, she she got this because like she was already in, you know, that sexual place in her life. So it's like now, you know, punishing her for that. But then again, it's like when it's something against their will and then, you know, rape victims or assault victims feeling like a completely different person like afterwards and like how losing that sense of self. Um, yeah, it is interesting that they don't, you know, usually portray those people like trying to use that, you know, thing that people would consider them villains for bad people for and trying to use that to, you know, restart themselves again and like kind of revitalize themselves. So using using succubi is like was very, you know, interesting to explore in that. Yeah, I think it was also what made it um, a little safer to allow her to be a villain because you could still show a lot of metaphor and allegory. So for me, a lot of these readings I came from was also just seeing how she looked, you know, how, uh, you know, if you were to look at her being drained because she only ate one boy in a week or something mm-hmm. uh, in and if this, if you look at it in real terms of somebody like that, maybe she's just depressed and hasn't been taking care of her usual hygiene and the way she normally would. And every now and then you're going to be happy and every now and then you're, you're, you're not going to mm-hmm. be happy. But by making sure that there is a literal demon inside of her, you can now make her the predator. You can make mm-hmm. her actually go to these boys who are pretty vulnerable and upset that their friends are dead. The fire, by the way, is also necessary for this part of the plot to work. Yes. Because otherwise you do get into the trappings of if a man were to make this, um, all of these boys would be rapey. They would be trying to throw down and get in her pants and be like, oh, I'll console you, baby. When Mm -hmm. instead you just have people like, hey, you look a little, do you want to talk? Maybe you want to date sometime? Like Colin just asks to date and she's like i know what you want he's like do i like, he doesn't really yeah he just likes her you know <laughs> like oh poor colin <laughs> yeah poor colin oh man that actor does not have luck especially in yeah. the, uh, the odds yeah kyle kyle Gardner. um yeah he he does not have the best luck um he does no. um he does fare better in um in uh recently the cleansing hour okay um, that was a good one but um i i also wanted to touch on i liked how you said um if what the movie would have looked like if they like leaned into, you know, needy trying to help Jennifer in a purposeful way, which would have been like you said, like trying to like teach her how to like control it or something like that. Um, again, watch Lost Girl. They kind of get into this a little bit, like because cool. initially the succubus character she like can't control her powers, so she always kills when she feeds, but then she learns to be able to feed without killing. So they do lean into that, and she has a human best friend. Um, but I'm also, I'm right in the, in the, that's what I am trying to explore, like kind of, you know, the, the subject that they were, they, they were getting into, but then I feel like there's so many layers going on that sometimes some of the thematic layers like come off more thin than others here. Yeah, that yeah. like because like touching because there is it, there is a lot of like oh, okay I want to cover like this whole ex- uh, experience of being a woman and that's kind of hard because obviously being a woman is ridiculously complicated so it's like that you can't explore all of it but like yeah I would have mm-hmm. but I do like the element that they're exploring like that's kind of what I'm exploring in my succubus movie I'm writing a script it's a it's a rape revenge movie. And there, and it's like basically of like the 
journey back of like taking back your autonomy after some right. after an event like that happens but then like what you use as you know using the thing that you know kind of trapped you before to like kind of empower you and like get back to that road so hopefully in a couple of years i'll have that movie for you that you think that this movie could have been maybe <laughs> maybe it will um serve it will be it will complete the spiritual trilogy of this movie and Jennifer's by in may and my movie who knows that could be the thing but my movie doesn't exist yet so to close out the the show what movie would would you pair for the perfect triple feature to go with May and Jeffers' body. Okay. I thought of two. And therefore, because, you know, one thing that Jennifer Jennifer's body does is really fuck with what movie are you watching? There are so many different perspectives you can take from it and different readings that you can give that one day you're going to watch it for one reason, one day you're going to watch it for another reason. And it hits you know, equally in, in those ways. So also, it's also how it pairs with May changes. Like, is it this quirky, dark comedy where everybody's just a little like oddball and then shit goes down? Or is it this dark introspective thing that's looking into sexuality and, and belonging? So for the more serious, dark introspective side, I thought of maybe let the right one in would be a really good one to throw in there, especially if you want to up the... <clears throat> uh discourse a bit and you go away from just bisexuality but look in terms of uh, bon uh you know non-binary life and and, and trans uh, mm -hmm. transitioning with the character of uh ellie eli i think ellie is how you pronounce it mm -hmm. and so that one could work and also of course you have oscar who is bullied and, and looking for the belonging so those two together is kind of mm -hmm. like may and needy finding each other yeah <laughs> to an extent <laughs> And then if you also are more kind of thinking about the, the succubus aspects of Jennifer's body and, again, the same issues that teenagers go through but in a more fun way, I'm going to have to say Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night too. Yeah. I would say <laughs> those are both great choices. I would say Let the Right One In is pretty spot on. Um, mm. yeah, like that is literally May and Needy together. That's so funny if you would, yeah, take the two different characters <laughs> from them. So yeah, I would throw that one in there. Um, that one works very well and especially the gender aspects as well. Uh, another, um, you know, gender exploration involving vampires. Um, you could say a girl walks home alone at night. Mm -hmm. Um, it could kind of fit into this. Um, as far as, um, you know, exploring like the non-binary, like kind of, you know, gender fluidity in there. Um, right. but then also just like kind of the, you know, cruelty of society and like how that kind of can change your outlook on things, you know, as far as the main character there is concerned, I would say that, or also recently covered on the podcast audition, I think would make a real good triple feature with these. Uh, it's yes. kind of it's kind of like May, how a majority of the movie is this like truly bizarre oddball romance movie, and then it just like where it ends up going into, and then it's like oh okay, like this is a lot going on here. So it's like I would, <laughs> so I think audition 
could pair very well. Like the, I forget her name already because all those names from January were so hard to remember, but the, the, uh, the female character in audition, um, is, reminds me a lot of May. Um, with there, we also touched upon one, uh, starry eyes and starry eyes. There you go. I, I mean, you guys know how much I love starry eyes. I love that movie so much. And uh, I would say it would, yeah, also qualify as like a potential uh, third one for that. But um, yeah, we have lots of great movies to talk about today. This was a fantastic episode, Chandler. Thank you so much for coming on and suggesting this movie. Um, had such a great time chatting with you, man. Uh, I had a delightful time. Thank you so much for uh, you know, deciding to just chew the fat with me. Yeah, man. Uh, what are you working on, and where can the people find you right now? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, generally talking about movies and similar discourses as today. Uh, my handle is at underscore shockaholic. Just one word, no no breakages there. And uh, you can find me on YouTube, where every now and then I will put a review out or some other discourse of, of video when I have time for that. Videos are uh, quite a lot to handle sometimes. Uh, that's also just called shockaholic. And as you mentioned, I write for something ghoulish and morbidly beautiful where I'm going to put out a piece just about once a month for both of those. And we'll see where we go from there. The future is uh, it's, it's open and vibrant sometimes. So we'll, we'll see uh, where the path takes. Hell yeah, my man. Um, I'm always intrigued to see what you're working on um, as far as your writing and stuff goes. But yeah, uh, the future is vibrant. Rainbows through the darkness as we uh, talk all these spooky <laughs> films. Um, make sure you guys go subscribe and follow him on all the things. So guys, we have one more week left here in lovesick month, uh, here in April, we're going to close it out talking some sensual vampires. Um, and then next month's theme for March, we'll be heading out into nature for all of March. We'll be exploring the wrath of nature and the beasts within and, outside and we're gonna have a real good time as uh the seasons change um make sure you guys go onto apple podcasts go rate it five stars write a few sweet words would very much appreciate it so that way we can grow this cult just a little bit bigger and uh yeah but that's gonna go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the blay blunt cinema club new episodes every tuesday join us next week as we are talking thirst and only lovers left alive with laura dg make sure you guys are following the podcast on twitter and instagram at bloody blunt cc and myself at underscore daddy disco and until next time guys stay lifted <laughs>